I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And this morning we're going to be in verses 17 through 31. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 21. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Mark chapter 10, and we'll begin in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. A great deal of our casual conversations with others tend to center around money. What is Bitcoin at now? How much did that home sell for? How much is is gas over there? How much was that fruit? Did you see what that NFT sold for? What what are those guys making these days? Did did you have to pay for shipping? I just think back to um, this past week or so. And I had conversations about airfare trends, sports card prices, pensions, the cost of international living, uh, home building material costs, church building material costs, the price of boba, a real estate market. I logged into our brokerage account. I went to our bank. I listened to the Planet Money podcast. I read about Governor Newsom's budget plans. I looked at a credit card statement. It's almost embarrassing when I, when I think about it. You know, it really sounds like I'm obsessed with money. 
And yet I imagine that I'm not too different than most of you. Those of you who earn and, and spend money regularly can probably relate. Even my children, though, they, they think about money. They think about what they can buy and how much they have saved. They talk about how much their cards are worth from a, a young age. So much of what we think and talk about in our society centers around money. We really have an insatiable interest in the topic. Some of us may love to save. Well, some of us may love to spend. But we're all interested in money. And Christians have swung back and forth over the years in the way that they viewed money. On the one hand, you have the monasticism of medieval Europe. You have the the shunning of wealth and the embracing of poverty for the sake of pure devotion to Christ. And on the other, you have the prosperity theology of modern Christianity. The idea that God wants to bless you and that the accumulation of wealth is a worthy pursuit because it's an indication of God's favor. And of course, there have been many other views somewhere in the middle. But if we're talking about the extremes... As residents of the Bay Area in 2021, I think we would agree that we are much more inclined to thinking about growing wealth than giving it away. Our social conversations tend to center around how we can accumulate wealth rather than how we can abandon it. We tend to pursue prosperity rather than poverty. And because of that, Jesus has an important word for us today. He tells us that to enter God's kingdom, you must live as one who values him above all earthly riches. He tells us that that seeking riches now can prevent you from seeing riches in the future. And, And he tells us that you cannot obtain God's kingdom through any riches of your own. If you want to experience the fullness of eternal life, if you want to experience life in God's kingdom, Jesus must be the focus and he must be the priority and he must be the the, the treasure of your life. And, well, that probably isn't the, the greatest revelation to most of you. It was a shocking and saddening message to the people around Jesus in his day. We are in a part of Mark's gospel where Jesus had been doing some serious discipleship. He'd been challenging those closest to him to really consider what it meant to follow him. He had been correcting a lot of their false assumptions about him. And this often led to surprising revelations for his disciples. And it happens again in Mark 10 as Jesus encountered a man who prompted him to tackle the topic of riches and the kingdom of God. This morning, I want you to notice, first of all, that it is difficult to be a Christian if you're rich. In verses 17 through 25, we see that it's difficult to be a Christian if you're rich. Verse 17 tells us that Jesus was setting out on a journey, his journey, in fact. And verse 32 tells us that his journey was to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking to the cross. But along the way, a man interrupted him. And Mark doesn't tell us too much about him initially. He just tells us that he was a man. But later on, we'll learn that he was rich. 
Matthew 19.20 also tells us that he was young. And Luke 18.18 tells us that he was a ruler. So this man has become known as the rich young ruler. But you shouldn't mistake him for your your run-of-the-mill, privileged, young millennial. He he wasn't a crazy rich Asian. He was a wealthy, but very well-behaved Jew. And we notice this in the way that he approached Jesus. He ran up and knelt before him. That was a sign of deep respect. And, And he asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man knew Jesus' reputation. He knew Jesus to be a good man. He also knew him to be a teacher who had seemingly mastered the secret of true spiritual life. And so this man had come to Jesus for help. He wanted to know what he should do to inherit eternal life. He asked him, in other words, how do I enter God's kingdom? This man was respectful. He was religious. He seemed teachable. He was so different than the the Pharisees and scribes who were also religious, but who had pridefully come to Jesus time and and time again to challenge him. This this man wasn't like that. He was an agreeable Jewish ruler. He seemed to check all the right boxes as he approached Jesus. But Jesus responded to his question provocatively. He didn't say, great, wow, wonderful, pray this prayer, or even, let me tell you the gospel. He asked the man a question instead. He said to him, why do you call me good? Jesus wanted to to tease something out of this man. It wasn't common to call someone a good teacher. Most Jews were wary of even calling very respected rabbis good because they, they feared that they might be identifying them too closely with God. And that's why Jesus said in verse 18, no one is good except God alone. There seems to be a sense in which Jesus was hinting at his own deity here. seems like Jesus was implying to the man that if he is really the good teacher, then he's God. Because only God is good. At the same time, Jesus was showing this man how his understanding of goodness was lacking in many ways. Ordinary teachers, ordinary men cannot be perfectly good. Everyone has sinned. No one is good except God alone. And so Jesus was pointing this man to consider who this good teacher really was in front of him and what he really thought about goodness. Because this man was about to claim that he had fully kept God's commandments. He felt like he was close to eternal life. He seemed to think that he himself was good, just like Jesus was good. But Jesus wanted to see him or wanted him to see how, how he was mistaken. So Jesus said in verse 19, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. Jesus affirmed the Old Testament law. This, these are all part of the, uh, the second table of the Ten Commandments, the, the ones that have to do with loving one's neighbor. There's just one exception. Instead of do not covet, we find do not defraud. Uh, The command not to defraud wasn't part of the original Ten Commandments, but it's still found in the Torah in places like Deuteronomy 24, 14. And it's possible that Jesus made this substitute because he knew the man was wealthy, and wealth was often gained in those days by defrauding or cheating others, especially the poor. And it's possible that Jesus knew that this was a command that would, at least at first blush, 
seem easier to keep than a command like do not covet, which is much more thought-based than action-oriented. And in this way, Jesus was setting up this man so that he could actually claim full obedience. In terms of his outward actions, the man could honestly say that he kept all of those commandments, which is exactly how he responded in verse 20. He said to Jesus, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Now, his claim to have kept the commandments probably sounds a little bit arrogant to us. But what he was simply trying to express was that he had, he had tried and probably tried fairly successfully to live a, a righteous life, at least in the way that he appeared before God. As to righteousness under the law, he was blameless, just as Paul wrote about his own life in Philippians 3.6. This man was essentially claiming that, that no one would have any apparent reason to accuse him of breaking of any of those commandments. And, and of course, we know from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus taught a deeper kind of righteousness. To keep the law isn't merely an external exercise. It's an internal one as well. Your, your motives and your heart also matter. But notice Jesus' response in verse 21. Mark writes, In Jesus looking at him, loved him. Jesus loved him. Jesus could tell that this man was sincere. He didn't accuse him of hypocrisy here. Didn't nitpick his response. Instead, he just reached out to him in love. And he did this by telling him the truth. He, he spoke candidly to him. He didn't sugarcoat the situation. He gave him an opportunity to follow him into eternal life. And, and in love, he said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus desired this man's salvation. If anyone is lost in their sin, it's not because Jesus doesn't love them. It's not because Jesus hasn't taken any initiative to invite them to follow him. Jesus offers eternal life. He offers treasures in heaven. He offers entrance into the kingdom of God to everyone. It's not just annual pass holders who get priority. It's not just historical donors who get to make a reservation. Jesus invites all to come and dine with him in heaven, but you've got to be willing to follow him. You see, Jesus got right to the heart of the issue in this man's life. He understood that wealth was the only thing that stood between this man and heaven. And he knew that this man, though externally good and respectable, and maybe even liked by others, had not learned to love God above all else. He had kept some of God's commands, but not the ultimate one, which was to love the Lord your God with all your heart. His money had gotten the way, and so Jesus called him to give it all away. Now, this isn't a universal command. Jesus doesn't call us all to sell everything that we have. We know that many of Jesus' followers still held on to many of their possessions. Luke 8, 1-3 tells us that his ministry was supported by several women who had means. Uh, Luke 19, 8 tells us that the, the tree-climbing tax collector Zacchaeus, who gave his wealth to the poor, Zacchaeus still kept 50% for himself. Other Christians in the New Testament were wealthy, and they weren't condemned for their wealth. Uh, each person's situation is going to be different. 
And giving away all that you own to the poor will not guarantee you a place in God's kingdom. Because wealth isn't the primary object standing in everyone's path toward eternal life. But it is for many. And it was for this man. And so Jesus called him to abandon all that he had because he wanted this man's allegiance to him. The man couldn't do it. Disheartened by the saying, verse 22 says, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He probably owned land, probably owned real estate. That's what that word possessions indicates. And he didn't just have possessions, he had great possessions. But he walked away from Jesus sad because he couldn't have it all. He was looking for a way to be saved and to keep his wealth. He thought Jesus might have the answer he was looking for. He, he knew he was lacking something. Even though he had done his best to keep God's commandments, he, he still asked Jesus what he had to do in, to inherit eternal life because he knew he was lacking. He, he knew he was missing something. I, I think he knew that he didn't love God with all his heart. This man was young and rich, but he also felt he was missing something because in reality he was spiritually bankrupt. And he reminds us that even though, G, though Jesus doesn't call everyone to sell everything they have, if you aren't willing to give it all up for him, you show that you aren't ready to follow him. Are you willing to give everything that you have up for Jesus? I know that's a hypothetical question, but I believe it's one that the Spirit is prompting us to ask ourselves through this passage. Are you willing, really, truly willing to give up everything that you have for Jesus? It's difficult to be a Christian if you're rich. After the man left, verse 23 tells us that Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And, and look at the disciples' reaction to all this. Mark writes that the disciples, in verse 24, were amazed at his words. Why? Why was this so shocking to them? Why was it so amazing to them? Well, just like many of us today, they thought that it was a sign of God's blessing to be wealthy. They were, they were raised in a kind of Jewish prosperity theology. They were raised in the environment in which people claimed, named, and claimed verses like Proverbs 10.22, that the blessing of the Lord makes rich. And they believed that to be wealthy wasn't merely for your own personal status or sophistication. It allowed you to do good deeds. It, it allowed you to be a philanthropist, to, to give to others. So it was a good thing to be wealthy and to hear the Messiah the Christ, to say that wealth makes it difficult to enter the kingdom of God was jarring. It didn't harmonize at all with what they had been accustomed to hearing. Something seemed off, and they probably thought it was the tune that Jesus was singing. But they didn't realize that that money-making melody that they had been enjoying all their lives was what was really off tune. I don't think anyone here wants to be poor. I know I don't want to be poor. We have a natural tendency to want to accumulate wealth. Everyone tells us that that's the right thing to do. Save your birthday and your Christmas money. Invest when you're young. Build equity in your home. Diversify your investments. Consider a rental property. Maximize your tax deductions. Make your money work for you. Hey, everyone around us tells us that 
It's good to be wealthy. Except Jesus. It's not against wealth. There were wealthy Christians in, in Bible, in the Bible. But Jesus knows that wealth makes it hard for someone to depend on God and give everything to him. Verse 24, Jesus doubled down on his initial statement. He said again to his disciples' children, my little ones, those whom I love and care for. It's as if Jesus was saying to them, loved ones, hear me out. I know that it's hard for you to understand this and to hear this, but listen, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this time he didn't mention the wealthy. But the context shows us that the rich are still the focus of Jesus' attention. For he says in verse 25, it is easier for a camel, that's the largest land animal in Palestine, to go through the eye of a needle. That's the smallest opening that, that they used commonly in those days. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Well, that's a that's an impossibility. Yesterday, we had to explain last night at the dinner table what the eye of a needle was to our children. And when they, when we actually kind of pointed out to them where they got it, they're like, what? Camel through the eye of a needle? Right. That's impossible. And, and some have tried to soften the language here. Some manuscripts have the word rope and, instead of camel because the Greek words are close in spelling. Some people have also postulated that there, is, there, there was a, a needle's eye gate in Jerusalem that camels would, would try to squeeze through. But there's no evidence at all for us. This saying is so extreme, so hard for us to hear that our natural tendency and people's natural tendency in the past has been to find a way around it. But Jesus said what he said in the way that he said it to purposefully shock the disciples and show us how difficult it is for someone who is rich to be a Christian. Why is it so hard? Why is it even impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The answer is that riches seduce us away from Christ. Riches seduce us away from Jesus. Riches bring us superficial happiness rather than true joy. They distract us from what's ultimately important. They tend to bring along other sins like selfishness and and greed and pride. And they tend to stifle our instincts to be sacrificial. Throughout the Bible, we, we see warnings against riches. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Even when we aren't absorbed in our things or our, our stuff or our investments, simply being wealthy is hazardous to our spiritual health because it has a tendency to grow that dangerous and deceptive weed of self-sufficiency that can eventually envelop our entire lives. That can make us lose the childlike, dependent faith that Jesus so valued and he had just recently extolled to his disciples in the previous verses of chapter 10. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's difficult to be a Christian if you're rich. Let me put it this way. It's difficult to be a Christian if you live in the Silicon Valley. 
Uh, let's just be clear that, that we're rich. Even if we don't feel like it. Even if we don't have stuff as nice as other people at school or, or a grade of a job as the people we went to school with. Or even if we don't live in that particularly prestigious zip code on the peninsula. Or even if we feel things are tight because of our mortgage or because of our rent. We're wealthy. And every one of us is tempted to let riches provide us with a false sense of security and an elevated level of self-sufficiency. Even if we feel like we haven't made it yet. And I know many of you probably feel that way. You know, you're not yet comfortable. You feel like you still got to get through college or, or pay for a wedding or buy a home or pay off a mortgage or see your children gain financial independence even if that's how you feel, you can strive after wealth because you feel like it will give you the security that you need. When the one that you really need is right in front of you saying, come, follow me. It's difficult to be a Christian if you're rich because riches seduce us away from Christ. So what should we do as those who are rich? What should we do? First, we've got to actively work to not become dependent upon wealth. We've got to actively work to not become dependent upon wealth. It's good to regularly feel like you need to rely on the Lord to provide for you. I'm not saying you have to go into debt or put yourself into some kind of bad financial situation. That's, that's not good stewardship. But perhaps more of our personal prayers need to be, Lord, help me not to be, depend on my money or my real estate or my stuff. Lord, untether my heart from, from all these things that I have. As you check the stock market during the week, pray, Lord, my, my portfolio isn't what's going to sustain me. You are the one who will sustain me. And these kinds of prayers should be part of our regular rotation. They really are just, Lord, give me my daily bread kinds of prayers. Lord, remind me that, that you are the one that I need to rely on each day to provide what I need. First, we've got to actively work to not become dependent upon wealth. Second, we've got to invest our wealth. As we get more, we must give more. Our giving to God's work and to those in need should, should affect our lifestyle. And there should be some things that we don't buy or some places we don't go to because we have been generous with our money. It's difficult to be a Christian if you're rich because riches can easily seduce you away from Christ. But there is still good news. When we find next in verses 26 and 27, it's difficult to be a Christian if you're rich, but it's still possible to be a Christian if you're rich. It's possible to be a Christian if you're rich. So that, that line by Jesus about the needle and the camel, that just floored the disciples. In verse 27, it doesn't just say they were amazed, but they were exceedingly astonished. And, and they said to him, then who can be saved? It, it seemed so hopeless to them. It seemed like the rich were destined to be shut out of God's kingdom based on what Jesus was saying. If, if a devout, wealthy, blessed, upstanding guy like this dude can't be saved, who can? Who can be saved, they asked. And that's really the right question. We've got to come to the end of ourselves before we can receive God's salvation. In verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible, but not with God. 
for all things are possible with God. What Jesus wanted the disciples to understand is that only God can save someone. We can't do it on our own. The rich young ruler asked what he could do to inherit eternal life. Well, none of us can do enough good. The Bible tells us we're all imperfect and sinful. None of us can change our, our hearts. There are things, th- these are the things that God has to do. And, and he has already done these things through Jesus. Jesus was the perfect man. He kept all the commandments, including the ones about loving God with all your heart. And he died in our place on the cross to be our perfect substitute. And Jesus has sent his spirit to convict us of our sins and to incline our hearts to believe in God. The impossible is possible with God. But we have to first embrace our utter inability to inherit eternal life on our own. We have to realize that none of us are as good as, as we should be, as we need to be. We have to divest ourselves of that self-sufficiency that wealth tends to breed. And we have to cast ourselves upon the grace and the generosity of God. To receive eternal life, you must remember that you can't do anything on your own to get it. You need God to do the miraculous in your heart and your life. But you can pray that God would give you that heart and that, and that new life if that's your desire. You don't want to walk away from Jesus with all your wealth, but still sorrowful. With God's help, you can choose to follow Jesus and to inherit eternal life. It's difficult to be a Christian if you're rich. But praise God, it's still possible to be a Christian if you're rich. And finally, if you're a Christian, you need to remember that you're richer than you realize. If you're a Christian, you need to remember that you're richer than you realize. We see this in the final verses of our text. In verse 28, Peter reinserted himself into this narrative. We haven't seen him for several verses, but, but we find him here. And observantly, he said to Jesus, see, we've left everything and followed you. We ain't like that dude over there. We might have been, not have been rich like him, but still, we left our nets behind to follow you. And Jesus didn't disagree. He affirmed Peter's statement. He told him that everyone who gives up something to follow him will receive back much more in return. He addressed those who have been left behind a, a house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands. Jesus was, was saying that if you give up the, the place where you feel like you, you belong, your house, or, or the people whom you feel like you belong to, your, your brothers and, and your sisters, or your cultural connection, your mother or, or your father, or your financial security, your children, or, or your earthly inheritance, your fields, if you give up those things for him, you will gain far more by following him. In fact, he said in verse 30, you'll receive a hundredfold now in this time. That's a 10,000% return. Crazy, right? Better than any cryptocurrency you can invest in right now. This is an asymmetrical trade with a promised return that any investor would dream of. And you'll get it now. You'll get it in this present time or age. You'll get houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Notice that you'll get everything in verse 29. Jesus, or in verse 30, Jesus didn't use or in that verse, verse 30, like he did in verse 29. He used and. You might have to give up one of the things above, something you hold dear to follow Christ, but you'll get back everything in return and more. 
And some of you who are astute readers might wonder or might have noticed why fathers are missing in verse 30. Mentioned verse 29, but missing in verse 30. And that's simply because all those who are in Christ gain a heavenly father who cannot be matched by any earthly father. Now, how exactly do you get this kind of return? Some of you might be thinking, hey, I just own one home, uh, or I'm not even close to owning a home right now. Where are my hundred homes at? Where are these brothers and sisters? Where's my land? And some prosperity preachers love to go to this passage. They love Mark 10, 30. They love to talk about how Christians need to give generously to others because when they do, God will give you back more in return. And that supposedly leads to an ever-increasing cycle of prosperity. You can really expect to gain more earthly wealth. In fact, Gloria Copeland, who is the the wife of the well-known televangelist Kenneth Copeland, has said, give $10, receive $1,000. Give $1,000, receive $100,000. In short, Mark 10.30 to her is a very good deal. But of course, this isn't what Jesus is talking about. He was actually talking about the church. In Mark 3.35, he said, Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The church is the place where you're going to receive a hundredfold. It's where you experience a, a huge family, both locally and globally, of brothers and sisters and mothers and children. The the church is where you are promised belonging and community and security and new reminders that you will be faith where God will be faithful to provide an inheritance to you. The church is where you experience an abundance of hospitality. One of my favorite things to do when I when I travel or get the opportunity to travel is to worship at different churches and meet Christians from different cultures. There's something sublime about the the fellowship that we share with those who live even thousands of miles away. And if you've gone overseas or you've gone on on missions, you've likely experienced the immense joy of being welcomed by strange yet somehow familiar brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what Jesus is speaking about. You gain access to the global family of God. I've been welcomed into hundreds of homes around the world because of a common bond that I share with those believers in Christ. You also gain access to the local family of God. You get the privilege of being part of a local church where homes should be open, resources should be shared. You get to know and love Christians of all ages and backgrounds. One of the great rewards of following Christ is the church. I know it's been hard for some of you during this past year to feel like the church is a reward. Maybe it feels like you haven't been welcomed or maybe it just feels like it's hard to be part of a church family, things being online or activities being cut. But don't give up on the church. Jesus said that the church is a hundred times better than anything else you might give up for him. The church is a rich reward for those who follow Christ. If you're a Christian, make the church a priority. Commit to a church. Come back to the church. This is where you will experience the greatest wealth on earth. It is a community of God where the love of Christ is shared and displayed in richly rewarding ways. If you hold the church at a distance, you will be denying yourself the greatest earthly return on investment that Jesus has promised you. Yet it is also important to note that the rewards we experience as followers of Christ aren't all positive. 
Jesus makes it clear that persecutions are part of our reward as well. We should expect to experience antagonism for Christ. But in a way, that's also a reward because we get to share in the sufferings of Christ and, and persecutions tend to sweeten any fellowship we can have with other saints. And then Jesus mentioned that in the age to come, his followers will receive eternal life. Finally, Jesus said in verse 31 that those who are first in the world's eyes, those who have earthly riches will be last on the day of judgment. And those who are last in the world's eyes, those who have given up everything for the sake of following Christ, will be first. Christians should measure riches in different terms than the world. And by those terms, all those in Christ are phenomenally well off. If you're a Christian, you're richer than you realize. Jesus called the young man in today's passage to sell everything that he had. To give up everything that he owned to follow him and to receive riches beyond his imagination in this age and in the age to come. If you, you really understand who Jesus is and how great his kingdom is, that, that's a trade that you should be willing to make any day. I, I know many of you are looking forward to getting on a plane and going on vacation somewhere far. It's something you've been longing and waiting for. Think of that upcoming vacation as eternal life. But before you get on the plane, you need to get through the airport scanner. And you've got to put some of your prized possessions on that scanner before you can get to the other side. You've got to put your phone and your tablet and your, your laptop and maybe your noise-canceling headphones and your favorite pair of shoes. You know, you get it. And it totally makes sense to give those things up for a moment because you'll get it back and you'll get more on the other side. You'll get to go on that vacation. But the sad reality is that so many are unwilling to put their phones and wallets in the tray. They're, they're clinging to their suitcases. They won't take off their shoes. They don't trust that it's worth it. And it's just so silly. They're just like this man. But Jesus is worth it. He holds out eternal life for us. This man was so close to it. He had the right question. He was headed in the right direction. He had packed everything in his life correctly. But he couldn't take that final step to get through the scanner. When God scans your heart, what is he going to find at the center? Will it be your homes? Is it going to be your crypto wallet? Your stock options? Your wardrobe? Your cars? Your furniture? Or will it be Jesus? How much are you willing to give for Jesus? You should be willing to give it all. Because whatever you give cannot compare to what you will receive, both in this age and in the one to come. Let's pray. Oh, Father, forgive us. I know Andrew has already prayed that prayer for us because we are so tied to our wealth and our riches. And they deceive us. They seduce us away from following Christ. Uh, forgive us for, for putting those things at the center of our hearts and not giving them up to follow you. Oh, Father, help us to treasure Jesus. Make us 
more generous people because of this passage and make us more committed to seeing the great treasure that is our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let the music play.